Okay, welcome everyone to Varian Perception's August monthly outlook call. Uh, my name is Aaron, I'm joined by Tian today, and um, as usual, I'll spend the first few minutes um, just covering the, the biggest changes in our indicators over the month, um, and then Tian and I will discuss how this affects our investment views. Um, so the biggest thing to, um, to highlight this month is um, the fact that our US recession signal jumped higher. Um, which tells us that the chance that the U.S. economy will enter a recession in the coming months is now much higher than it was previously. Um, so the overall message for us is that this is not the time to be chasing rallies higher. Um, it's not the time to start aggressively deploying cash. And so just thinking through some of the nuances around that, you know, in terms of what will actually trigger our U.S. recession signal. So this is the top left chart here on slide three. Um, so the red line there is effectively um, a count of how many of our sub-models have triggered so far. Um, historically, when we've seen um, over half of the sub-models trigger, that is a, a very good um, lead on a U.S. recession. This is, you know, again, we're going off NBER recession, so not going off two quarters GDP. Um, and in the middle chart there, I've just shown some of the hard data inputs that we're tracking. So right now, uh, we are starting to see some hard data stress uh, pick up quite quickly. Um, and again, the way that we think about uh, recessions is very much these feedback loops that occur between uh, soft and hard data. Um, and, you know, soft data being effectively survey and market data and hard data being kind of the real economic activity that we see. Um, and the intuition there is that um, effectively, we, we need to confirm um, some of the stress that we're seeing with the U.S. consumer, like in confidence surveys, for instance, at multi-decade lows. Uh, we need to see that translated into hard data. So things like initial claims starting to really pick up and see a more pervasive rise there. Um, and really, the, the key thing is that once you start to see stresses in soft and hard data at the same time, um, that can very quickly tip an economy into recession. And that's where you'll see uh, kind of the broad um, industry declines, kind of the cascade falls in asset markets. Um, so right now, the, the net read is that we're, we're almost there and we're very much watching um, US consumer and the, the bullwhip effect reversals start to play out in the data. Um, and so just looking at kind of the, the more kind of broad-based cyclical context, the indicators that we've got, um, just the bottom charts on slide three, um, we've got our liquidity indicators, that are still at very, very low levels, excess liquidity still at multi-decade lows. Um, our BCFI is starting to turn up. Um, however, um, you know, also looking at forward BCFI, which is effectively looking at money markets just to understand um, what central banks are likely to do in the coming months. I would just say that Effectively, the, the long and variable lead times with things like forward BCFI doesn't mean we're out of the woods yet in terms of liquidity conditions uh, getting better. And so for the time being, I think we just have to respect the fact that liquidity indicators are still incredibly low. We need to wait for confirmation of a more meaningful upturn. And until we see that happen, uh, the risk taking environment, I think, is, is still pretty negative on a six month view. Um, and then just in the bottom right chart, um, I've just got the, the top three country leading indicators that are all rolling over sharply um, in unison. Um, China LEI still no signs of turning back up. Um, the only saving grace for the time being is our US leading indicator is in positive territory, but again, rolling over sharply and should be breaching um, negative territory very soon. 
Um, and so overall, I would just say, again, it confirms that this is not the environment to be taking risk aggressively. And um, with that, I think it's really just respecting some of the tactical tools that we have just to um, size positions with the overall cyclical map kind of in place. Um, and so I would say that our base case um, when weighing up the cyclical and the tactical is that this remains, at least for equity markets, um, a playbook of one step forwards, two step back. And I would say that, you know, reviewing some of our tactical tools, we said in late June um, that, you know, things like positioning, sentiment, um, and some of the historical analogs showed us that there was potential for a short squeeze. That's now played out. And reviewing where we are today, it seems as though the tactical outlook is a lot more mixed and it's um, it, it's kind of premised to add hedges and to respect the fact that the short squeeze is ending. So I would say that, you know, with all that in mind, optionality is, um, is very, very important here. I wouldn't be looking to aggressively put on um, outright shorts at this point um, and things that we flagged in in our most recent reports, things like put spread collars are a very attractive way just to play uh, for more downside from here. Um, so with that, uh, Tian, I think um, it would be useful just to get a sense of what you're seeing right now. You've been away from, from your screens for, for quite a while, uh, just taking a step back and just getting a sense of your more objective view of what's going on. Um, you know, what, what stood out to you as most interesting over the last couple of weeks? Yeah, well, I, I guess it's been a week, right, since um, since I've been away on holiday. So, well, I, actually, I, I think a couple of things jump, jumped out at me from what you said. I think the first thing to emphasize on the recession model is the way it works is we affect the model is fitted to historical MBR dates, right? So effectively, every month, what the percentage is saying is, what is the probability that this past month will be declared a recessionary month um, on our models? using unrevised data that's not subject to the vintage data problem effectively. So the fact the model reads 40% right now for July is saying that it's a 40% chance that when the MBER dates a recession, July will be labeled as a, as a recessionary month, right? And obviously you can see from the chart historically, January, when you jump to this level, it generally only goes higher. And obviously on our models, generally when you go above 50 is when we will probably label it a one. So I think that that's probably helps to clarify a little bit of exactly and what I, the model's I trying think to just do. To, just to clarify as well, just the top left chart, you're talking about the lasso model, which is the purple yeah, box right. at the bottom. And so, yeah, yeah you yeah. can see that once you get to that point, it's, um, you know, it very rarely comes back down to zero. And yeah, it, it does feel like the writing's on the wall there. But I think, yeah, this was, um, this was related to a question that we had, just as you say, um, you know, we're focusing on unrevised data and the, the reality is often revised later down the line, right? Yeah, I think that's the thing, right? Again, if you if you try and be empirical and look at how data behaves into historical recessions, obviously, you know, 2001, 2000, these are, um, there's a lot more data for, for those like non, non kind of policy driven, right? Like 2020 is obviously policy driven recession. Um, but for those ones, what you tend to see is a lot of the data currently being cited in the media about whether we're in recession or not, most of those data prints will get heavily revised. Um, down the line, in particular, things like labor market data, non-farm payroll data, GDP data. You know, in real time, again, if you go back to 07, you know, in, in fourth quarter 07, a lot of the data was fine. And then obviously six, nine months later, they go back and revise and suddenly that's when they determine it's, a, it's kind of the recession starts there. So I think that's one of the dangers today, where if we look at most of our inputs, 
it's generally unrevised data. So you're using various kind of market inputs, but also um, kind of sentiment, uh, some, some of the sentiment surveys and, you know, things like the Fed balance sheet number data. It's like numbers that's, again, it, it's not like they're not subject to any revision, but the revisions tend to be smaller or they tend to be not be significant historically. So I think it's on those unrevised data or data with minimal kind of vintage data issues, um, you know, the, the probabilities of, uh, of going to recession has risen substantially. I think that's probably the best way to, clar to clarify it. Um, now, obviously in the context of the fact that our liquidity indicator has been so poor for so long, it, it's very hard to, for us to um, turn kind of structurally bullish, right? Or even have on a six months plus outlook to be bullish from here that, you know, all this talk about whether it's a start of a new bull market, you know, none of that fits. We put out the thematic report, you know, obviously end of the month, last month, um, again, what are the signs to look for at market bottoms? Go through the checklist. We're not there yet, right? We haven't seen curve steepening. Um, bonds, you know, bonds are just starting to rally, but we're not seeing kind of the, the really big recession scare rally yet. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the Fed hasn't eased. So again, I think, yeah, the the, the six months plus outlook is still tough, um, right? So you're still, we're going to still need to ultimately have, have in mind kind of a risk off, I think, um, bias. Um, however, you know, the tactical charts you highlight is very interesting. In particular, I noticed um, that the tactical context for the S&P has gone positive mm. now, right? Um, so again, this is stuff, or at least we backtested, where when it goes positive, the expected for a return every week, that's pretty good. So, you know, and I, I had a look at some of the, the gamma models this morning where around 4,200 on S&P is like a really, really yes. kind of solid. Yeah, you've got the chart there, right? It's like, there's a lot of positive gamma around here. So, so, um, you know, you can easily see us can get the dealers kind of delta hedging and paying us here um, mm -hmm. in terms of S&P. So that actually kind of suggests that even though the median rally says takes us to 4150 kind of range, if you get up to 4300 and above, that'd be a, a, that's a zone where it gets a lot lighter and probably easier to put shorts on tactically. Yeah. Um, so, so that's a few things that kind of jumped out at me. Otherwise, I, I do notice holes obviously kept grinding lower um, for the past week. Um, where, um, you know, if arguably it makes sense because, you know, some risk premium is being taken out given the CPI print. Um, but again, I don't think the CPI print is that much of a game changer, right? We've had this thesis that it's an inflation plateau, not necessarily a peak because um, the May data, you know, we thought the May date, we thought the May data would have confirmed March, April would have been an inflation peak and it really rolls over, right? And obviously since we saw the May data, it became pretty obvious it's going to be a high plateau for a while. And so if it's high plateau, I still think the underlying concept that we discussed for the past few months still makes sense, which is there's enough in the inflation data for bonds to rally and to, to look at buying duration, um, but there's not enough in the inflation data to save equities, to bring the Fed put back, to save kind of excess liquidity. And that still seems broadly to be the case in the wake of the, um, the, the CPI print. Because obviously a lot of, I, you know, I noticed a lot of it is driven off through the energy, which we talked about as a wild card, right? Like the other... Um, you know, the other pieces kind of, well, actually shelters, shelters actually still going higher. You know, we had the thesis that the kind of observe versus asking rent gap would close, which would help actually shelter CPI to slow down. But the problem is that the asking rents are, <laughs> just keep going higher and higher yeah. every month. So, it's, <laughs> so, so even if it closes, the shelter CPI looks like it's actually going to stay high now as well. So, um, yeah, I think overall, as you say, it's kind of, yeah, I still think that the, uh, a broad, you know, 
don't don't be a hero still probably makes sense you know if we got to 4300 plus that's probably a much easier zone to establish shorts but in the meantime overlaying portfolios with things like put spread colors and you know still certainly seems pretty attractive uh, uh to me mm -hmm. yeah i would i would say that just piggybacking off what you said um this is not the cpi peak that we need to turn bullish and I think, you know, just digging through some of the underlying data as well, um, you know, all of the things that are in core CPI, uh, things like used cars, um, you know, airfares, um, you know, even rental cars. Um, these were the ones that did the, the driving, right, for the core CPI to roll over. And, you know, if you look at things like the trim mean, like we know that the Fed looks at that, um, those are still rising, right? They're still at, you know, 40, 40 year highs that kind of level. And we're not seeing a rollover on that front. And we can look at things like inflation breadth as well, which is still incredibly high. Um, and so it's, it is a bit strange when we, you know, looking at the market price action and also looking at a lot of commentators now that are calling for the effectively the start of a new bull market, right? I mean, you know, obviously NASDAQ 20% off its lows now. And so, you know, technically it is a new bull market, but I think at the same time, it feels like people are very much chasing the rally higher and uh, effectively thinking that June 16th was the low and this is the time to start deploying cash. But I just, you know, weighing up all of the, you know, both the inflation data and the cyclical picture, it just feels very, very difficult to say that that is the case. And, you know, some of the things that are tactical, um, I guess some of the technical analysts have been pointing to is, you know, things like breadth. I've just got here just the chart of um, all of the, the gigs for industries, um, you know, 150 odds, and just looking at, you know, how many of them are rising above their 200 day moving average. And, you know, you can see it's triggered over the last uh, couple of days, um, but it's, you know, it's triggered at the start of every uh, new bull market, but it's also, also triggered many times during a bear market rally. So, um, you know, we're seeing a lot of these signals playing out and, to us, it just confirms that the short squeeze is happening. It doesn't necessarily lead us to a new bull market. And I think that's really where we're starting to marry up the, the cyclical picture and the equities roadmap that we've been talking about and all the milestones that are still just not there, right, that we can check off. Um, and so, you know, with that, I think in mind, it's, it's really difficult for us to start turning bullish. Um, and I will say that you know, just um, I guess going back to your point on um, on the, uh, the fact that, you know, data is heavily revised, I would just say that, you know, we have actually quantified this, just looking at payrolls data and looking at the real-time release um, versus the revised data, um, you know, that's many months after the fact. And what we found is that generally data, labor market data and other coincident data um, tends to be too optimistic heading into a recession. Right. So often when people know that the reality is a lot worse than it is, then people go back and then start to revise the data to make it seem as though um, the reality was much worse at the time. So I think that's just something I'm kind of trying to <laughs> contend with when I'm looking at various bullish headlines. But the fact is that the data that everyone else is looking at is subject to heavy revision. Um, and so, again, I think reinforcing the point that we really do want to look at unrevised data, look at what markets are saying, sentiment data, um, and also focusing on the hard data that is um, uh, relatively unrevised.
Yeah, um, think- the, other, the, the other thing I would add is I think just generally now still looking at long, long vol exposures, especially mm-hmm. in, in the coming months, probably does make sense because, as you say, the most important shift is that our lasso-based recession model has this huge jump, right, in terms of the recession probability. It's basically gone from zero to 40%, right, in a month. Mm-hmm. And in the lasso is inherently like effectively like a Bayesian updating kind of model. So I tend to think it reflects better how the real world works. It's not like just a level triggers, right? It's, it's constantly updating itself. Um, and, and so the reason I think that matters a lot is there's a lot of talk for equity investors about the earnings forecast. And obviously we've sent, we've shown a lot of those charts as well, where the forecast earnings are still pretty good, but most business cycle indicators suggest earnings are going to roll over. Yeah. Um, now, having gone back, we've actually gone back and studied like historical earnings recessions, right? And the main conclusion has actually been that earnings recessions that occur alongside an economy-wide recession are the ones that bite. Earnings recessions that occur outside of the economy-wide recession tend to be actually very good buying opportunities, mm-hmm. right? By the time you see it, it's a, it's a buy, right? I think like 18 was the example yeah. um, of one. So I think that's the issue when the pre when all this talk about earnings recessions or not, the, the bigger context is probably whether the, the overall economy uh, recession risk is going up. And the fact that the models jump so much is um, pretty concerning, right? Like, as you say, initial claims, a 20% rally off the lows in initial claims has preceded. It, you know, all the recessions are basically preceded by that, but obviously mm-hmm. not every 20% rally leads immediately to a recession, right? So you're getting more and more of these kind of, um, you know, necessary conditions if you like being being in place so yeah it still feels like if that's the environment but in the meantime you're getting this relief rally and some good narratives around peak cpi even though we think it's a plateau then clearly looking for long roll kind of expressions into this is is probably um going to make the most sense yeah i'm just yeah i think taking a step back almost and just thinking about you know what what will drive the next leg higher in equities, right? And just thinking about the two fundamental drivers in terms of valuation expansion or earnings growth. And so, you know, as you were saying, earnings growth, you know, I've got the here at the bottom left chart from slide seven, uh, looking at some of our business cycle indicators, just uh, effectively doing a PCA, this is the red line. Um, it has a very, very good lead on S&P EPS growth and where it is right now, which is incredibly negative and it's consistent with, uh, previous recessions is um, it suggests that the forward EPS right now is incredibly divergent, right? And so if your EPS growth driver is flipping negative, really you've got to rely on further valuation expansion. And what drives valuation expansion? It's liquidity, right? And so until we see that that positive liquidity response, i.e., you know, we see either a Fed policy pivot or starting to see things like BCFI excess liquidity turn higher and turn meaningfully higher from their extreme lows right now. Um, it's incredibly difficult really to see how the next leg higher um, can, can arrive beyond just tactical short squeeze indicators, right? Um, and I think just um, just running through some of the other charts on this, um, on this slide, um, I think one exercise that was quite interesting that we did was um, effectively trying to understand what is each asset's um, you know, pricing for a recession as of today? And so the way we do that is just looking at um, effectively today's drawdown versus it's the asset's historical um, median drawdown in recessions um, in the past. And really the, the intuition there is that if today's drawdown, it looks pretty extreme and it's consistent with 
um, previous recessions, then you know that's it suggests that there isn't particularly that interesting of a divergence. But you know, if we look at the asset class level, just on the top right chart, uh, you can get a quick picture that you know equities and commodities pricing in a, a decent chance of a recession, but nothing too extreme. But then the actual extremes are weird bonds, right? So high yield is most complacent, uh, but even US treasuries um, are pricing in, you know, even though we have seen, you know, the yield peak at three and a half and we have seen um, the fallen yields there, it's just not, um, it's not significant enough um, relative to previous recessions to be saying that bonds are pricing one in now. And so I think with that, backdrop in mind it just it helps us i think contextualize exactly you know what assets are pricing in right now and again looking at some of the sectors um you know consumer staples healthcare utilities they're all at the bottom of the range and so even though these defensive sectors right naturally they're going to have shallower drawdowns in uh, in a recession but even that bearing in mind that that context right now today's drawdowns look nothing like a um a, a bog standard recession and so i think with that in mind equities are effectively um, looking pretty divergent with what we're seeing, at least with the cyclical picture and bearing in mind our last recession models and so forth. Would you have anything to, to add to that, Tian? Yeah, actually, just here when you talk about it, we, we should actually do the same thing for yield curves, right? Just mm -hmm. let's say 2s, 10s or, or 3 months, 10 or 5s, 30s, um, and just look at how that behaves. Because obviously something that's like a bit top, again, when I say that and I think about it, I do wonder how much more inverted we can get because obviously if you invert enough at some point the risk reward just favors you, you kind of you know it, it kind of just favors putting steepness on at some point betting on the fair to back off right i like i think given all our top-down liquidity growth recession all these indicators normally you would say the default trade is still that you know all else the same right you will want to go for flatness you will want to buy duration right and you know people you think people rotate back into bonds However, obviously, given the starting, you know, we are pretty, we are very inverted, right? On twos, tens, mm -hmm. these kind of things. Certainly, your curve caps and where, where the forward rates are, it's a, you know, it, it, you would have to think, you know, you got to buy, buy your curve caps here. Um, mm -hmm. But again, outright, I, I think that's something, it, it feels like there's, in, is, there's probably enough that you're, you're probably better off betting, especially, you know, obviously, we need the recession to happen first and then the Fed will back off. So you probably need to, so before the Fed shifts, it, it won't happen. So it's a question of how long that takes. Mm. Um, but yeah, it, it does feel like increasingly we've got to think about when when you start putting steepness back on. It still feels like given all our macro indicators and the Fed's current rhetoric, we're not there yet, but it, it's certainly becoming more, um, coming into view a lot more of that, right? So I, yeah, um, so we should probably do a little bit around that. Like your cup caps got, got to make sense, it, it, right? If you, can, if you can carry it from here, you, you would think. Yeah, I would agree. Again, everything just points to uh, favoring optionality at this point, right? Like you wouldn't want to put on a, a direct one. Um, just as you say, it feels as though path of least resistance is still for, for more flattening and inversion until we see like an, a meaningful policy pivot, right? I think historically that's that's always been the case. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think just with that mindset, right? And, um, you know, the way I'm thinking about it as well is that I still want to be exposed, you know, if say, say we are wrong, right? And the recession model is, um, you know, it's it's flagging way too high of a chance of a US recession. Then I suppose in that case, right, we, I think we have to fall back to some of the more structural stories that we flagged already. 
and then effectively having these hedges on as a way to you know monetize if we are right but at the same time let the longs carry us through if we're wrong um and so things like um you know energy where the structural story is still intact um you know still we feel as though it's not fully priced in in terms of the the actual cash flow boost and the fact that the capital cycle is still <laughs> just so supportive uh, but even things like <laughs> home builders right i think again it, it feels as though it's an incredibly contrarian trade and you know, even though they have rallied pretty hard um, you know, you're going from like low single digit PEs to like mid-range single digit PEs. And so, you know, to that extent, yes, they're not pricing in a recession as severely as before. Um, however, in the scenario that, you know, market narrative shifts to, you know, soft landing or whatever it is, and we are wrong about a recession, then, you know, the, I'm just thinking about the upside where, you know, these can be effectively multi-baggers in a very short space of time, right? The things that price in a recession the hardest, uh, you know, at the start of the year, naturally these ones should be the ones to to aggressively um, reprice after that. I don't know if you feel differently about that or thinking about other areas, if we are wrong. Yeah, no, I think that's a very good way of, of framing it, right? If we we're, if were to think about relative value opportunity, given the, the recession models ticking up, yeah, certainly trying to, get a sense of what's implicitly priced in um, in terms of recessions is going to create that, create that opportunity, I think. Um, but something, I, I do have a question for you, though. Like, wh what do you make of the, the commodity moves? Obviously, we put out that trading, trading the commodity intermission. You know, you, I think you did some work on some of the, the sentiment, mm. contrarian tactical buys. But yeah, we've obviously seen some decent squeezes um, now. So yeah, what, what do you make of that? Yeah, yeah. So I have um, I've only got just the one chart here on slide four, bottom right, um, where we looked at effectively the sentiment Z scores for um, for all the commodities we track. Um, and just to highlight to, to clients, you know, this is um, you know effectively our sentiment Z score looks at things like um, you know option price data, SKUs, um, you know positioning data, and so forth, and trying to get a sense of how. Um, uh, effectively how contrarian the buy signal is right now right and so looking at just the red line um you know it has ticked back up from a very low level and so you know when we put that report out um i think it was last week um you know we were sitting at very contrarian levels and so reviewing all of the other you know cyclical and structural charts um you know the picture there hasn't changed too much but then when we see the tactical flip quite viciously to positive it tells us that you know the short squeeze potential is pretty high and so when i'm looking at all the charts today um you know it's even bearing in mind some of the moves like just looking at copper um it still shows that there is potential for 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 this to run because you know looking at some of the drawdowns you know for copper aluminium and so forth you know these are like 30 40 percent drawdowns right and um bearing in mind you know our structural thesis is still very supportive um, it's just the cyclical picture really that has failed to turn up as yet. Um, it tells us that, yeah, there's, there is a lot of potential here to, to let this run further. And so, you know, to the extent that, you know, the market narrative shifts towards, um, you know, Chinese easing and inflation and so forth, uh, we would prefer to wait for the data to confirm that. But I'm just thinking, you know, what can cause the next leg high for, you know, on the tactical sense, because positioning is still very short. Um, you know, sentiment is still at contrarian levels. And, you know, to the extent that people start focusing on, you know, I think it's a seasonally strong period for like some of the Chinese 
uh, steel producers, this is kind of the time when they start hoarding. Um, you know, we'd like to confirm that in the data, but to the extent that the market then shifts to to pricing that in, you know, these are these are still powerful um, powerful opportunities on the long side. Um, and I will say as well, just the other point to make. Um, is that the trading liquidity for these commodities markets is uh, incredibly thin right now. Um, so, you know, obviously yeah, it's a summer period and so forth. So generally it is pretty weak, but um, we've been looking at some of the commodities trading houses as well. And they've been also um, saying that it's an unusually weak uh, period for liquidity. And so to that extent, uh, you know, you can get some very, very big moves and we've been looking to um hold on to these tactical positions at least until we see more evidence of the short squeeze playing out so i think on that sense i'm pretty happy to let it run um i haven't seen enough in the tactical side i think to take that off of yet i see okay um so maybe i think to conclude maybe we should look ahead a little bit at the rest of the month um i think there's another cpi print before the next fed meeting anyway so we're probably going to be in somewhat of a, a holding pattern especially with all the positive gamma we flagged earlier um and i guess obviously it's in the summer right so um yeah i think the the, the september cpi print uh, I, when we see the august cpi in, sep in september um that's obviously going to be very important but given again the month-on-month -month comparables comparisons are quite difficult right that's why i'm minded to think right we're just gonna we're gonna need to see what happens on that data print and then we'll get into the market you'll probably firm up 50 75 and then um and then you'll probably get some moves around that before, uh, yeah, before we probably get a more decisive move, right? Um, if yeah, if so, we're going to, you know, yeah. I mean, CPI just basically just reversed the um, the hikes priced in after the non-farm payrolls, right? So in that sense, we're kind of at the at the same um, at the same point. And you know, even the Fed, like I think Kashkari came out, a couple of other guys from the Fed just saying that again, the CPI data doesn't really tilt us either way. Um, so in that sense, you know, the Fed put for us still isn't, it's still absent, right? Um, we've, we've got no indication from the Fed at least and nor from the data that anything's changed on that front. So yeah, I would agree with you that, uh, yeah, holding pattern does seem to make sense. Um, respect the tactical tools um, and favor optionality. I think that's the big thing. Great. Great. Um, yeah, we're at the half an hour mark. Um, Thank you everyone for, for dialing in today. We'll put up a, um, a transcript and recording in the coming days. And uh, we look forward to seeing you on next month's call. Thanks very much.